In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We're continuing our sermon series. Uh, we are looking at focus, and this is, as I said, not the, these are not the seven deadly sins. We didn't have enough weeks to do that. Plus, I added a different one, and this is actually one of the seven deadly sins, but we have six weeks. So this is our third one. Last week, we talked about duplicity and the importance of promises, what promises mean in building community and what promises mean in building relationships. And, and without holding on to your own promises, you really don't have anything. They had that illustration with the kids of holding with your promises, you really hold yourself in your hands like water, and when you let that go, there's not much left to you, and you kind of wonder, who am I? Like, what am I doing if I don't commit to the things I'm going to say? And ultimately, we fall down on Jesus' promises, reconnect to Jesus' promises. Uh, today, we're going to be looking, I'll just jump right into it. This is a familiar section, so I'm going to go right to it. This is in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, probably a familiar section to many of you, so we'll just we'll jump into it. So just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice he left one out here. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, and in the, in the Gospel of Mark it says he looked at him and loved him, but here it says, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. <clears throat> when the young man heard this, he went away sad, and really the word is grieved. Uh, distressed because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Um, as a kid, I understood this much differently. The, the enemy or the, the, I just heard, a, if, if you listen to Your Time of Grace, Dr. Uh, Pastor James Hine was talking about protagonists and antagonists this week. So normally when you tell a story, when you see a movie, there's protagonists, which are the good guys, and the bad guys. And when I was a kid, he made reference to G.I. Joe, the cartoon. Has anyone ever seen this? G.I. Joe, the cartoon. Um, it, it's very obvious who are the good guys and the bad guys. How do you know when they get into a laser fight, because they don't use actual bullets back then. They use lasers. The blue lasers are the good guys, and the red laser is distinctly bad. Everyone knows this. And Star Wars picked up on the same thing, right? When they go to the, the lightsaber blacksmith, and the guy's like getting ready to make it, what does he have to ask him? Hey, are you bad or good? You want green or blue? Or if you're bad, I got the red ones over here, right? I mean, that's kind of how it works. So, so there's bad and there's red ones, because in, in, in all that time, we still haven't caught on with like fighting with lasers, have we? Does anyone know anyone who fights with lasers? No, because it doesn't work. I mean, you watch the stormtroopers. A, they're not very accurate. They don't hit anything. They don't actually do any damage anyway. There's no physical damage done with these, with these lasers. They get them right back at them, and they just, like, fall over. So, it's, uh, so we have not picked up on lasers. But we, we know then, but with the colors, who's good and who's bad, right? Is there any confusion? If you're bad, you wear a helmet, cover your face. I mean, it's really obvious. You wear black. This is really clear. Once in a while, now, movies experiment with, like, who actually is good and who's bad. And they, they trick you, right? They... They trick you into liking someone who's not very good. This happens all the time. So in this 
account we have, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. When as a kid, it was very clear, Jesus is always good. And Jesus is still good, even at the end, don't worry. Um, but, it, but who's the bad guy? The, the, the rich young guy, I always thought, like, yeah, what a jerk. You know, this guy's not a very good guy. But why are the disciples so surprised when Jesus talks so harshly to him? I think because, like, in person, I don't think it would have been that clear. Like, if you met this guy, do you think it would have been really clear that he's the bad guy in the story? So just think about that. He's the kind of guy you'd probably want to come to your church, to be honest. I mean, besides the fact that he's wealthy, um, he's physically wealthy, but morally, is he like a guy you don't want to be near? He's pretty morally wealthy too. I mean, Jesus asks him, have you committed adultery? He's like, no. And we, we just have to assume we're telling the truth here. I mean, we have to assume he's not just completely lying, but it, we assume that he doesn't um, commit adultery. He doesn't steal. He's not uh, a bad son. It says he honors his father and mother. He, he hasn't murdered anyone. So, I mean, we got that out of the way. So he sounds like a pretty good guy. And from the disciples' perspective, just imagine kind of witnessing this. This guy comes up. He, he's really wealthy, and he's morally wealthy. And what attitude does he have as he comes to Jesus? Like, what is really distinct about this guy that would make it a pleasure to have this person as part of your church? He, he admits, I, I don't have it all together. There's a whole lot of stuff in my life that's together here. A whole lot. You know, wealthy, and I'm following the rules, I'm doing the best I can, but he seeks out someone and says, I'm, I'm still missing something. I mean, that's the thing that, like, makes your heart leap when you meet someone. Imagine you have an employee who's super talented and, and really good, and you go sit down for your employee review, and they go, you know what, 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 else do I, what else do I need? You know, they still recognize there's something, you know, I haven't quite got to the top. And the, the disturbing part, I think, of this story, when you kind of relook at it, is Jesus doesn't embrace that. Instead, Jesus talks pretty harshly to him. And so the disciples, it says, are astonished. They, they can't believe this. Like, why are you talking this way? What is going on? Because this seems like you're starting this new movement. This is the kind of guy we'd want. He's influential. He's a good guy. It, it, this would be perfect. And Jesus, like, sends him packing. And what I think that the main problem is, is we, if you think of it like a mountain, this guy is saying, hey, what, I need, like, one more step, Jesus. Can you just kind of help me out here? And Jesus says, you know, brother, you're on the wrong mountain. And he, he sends him away, and it just it kind of shakes up his whole world. There's a couple things that happen in this story that I think are really unique. And one is he, he gets to meet the real Jesus, and I think that's kind of an awesome thing. So when you think of Jesus, just think of your picture of Jesus. you have a picture? Everyone have a picture of Jesus? Um, and I don't know which one is there's Surfer Jesus. If you've seen that one, I've shown you pictures of that. That one's really that one is in my house as a kid. Then there's um, another one. In 1944, they made it. It's kind of stoic Jesus, and usually the paintings about this big, real dark colors. One of my favorite paint, and then a guy named uh, Mike. I can't think of his last name. He's known as the Jesus painter, and now it's kind of moved on to the next generation. Has anyone ever heard of the Jesus painter? So what what he does, and what he made popular in the late 90s, and he would go to congregations in the midst of a worship what is happening, they would be painting, and it's kind of like, um, uh, we were on the cruise, ah, I said I'd never mention the cruise again, we were, on, we were in a location, and there was some art form happening, but one of the guys was a sand artist, if you've ever seen that, so they have the screen on it, and then they tell the story, and they're like mixing it all up, and then on the screen, have you ever seen that, and then they move things, and then it seems like, what are you doing, this is a big mess, and then they move like three things, and then there's a mermaid or something like that, and it's really awesome. This is kind of what this guy does with Jesus, but this is one of his paintings, probably my favorite, this is known as Jesus' eyes. They have a bunch of them. <coughs> I 
Um, but you can actually order one that they paint, which I think would be kind of cool. It's like 400 bucks or something like that. I'll probably get the print for $29.95. But so that you can, here's, it's really awesome. And you just think of Jesus. Now, when, there's two reactions that you have when you really meet Jesus. There's two. And one that I always have as a kid is I, I'm, I, I'm blown away by the love and acceptance that Jesus has. That's how I grew up. Jesus was my Savior no matter what I did. And I would have to go to my room. Um, you can picture we had seven people, so I'd go up the stairs. And here was that picture of Jesus. And if I was feeling really guilty, I'd still have to go past him on my way to my room. And I'd always think how loving and accepting he was. I never saw Jesus as like this judge with huge, huge demands on me. I just thought about, wow, he, I cannot quite comprehend the love that he has for me. <laughs> the other side of it is, um, it's hard to comprehend the demands that Jesus has. And it's, it's much like anything, and, I, and I've compared to this before. If you like history, that's the easiest example. If you know history, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. But the more you know, you start to appreciate how things kind of connect together. And I think the same thing is true. We have a, um, someone who's here in film and production. I bet he, he knows way more about movies and how it all works than I do, which is not much. I mean, the bar is like this high. But he knows way more than I do, and the more that you know, the more you appreciate, the more you realize, I don't really know anything about that. I think that's our life as a Christian. Doesn't it seem like that? I mean, our job is to grow in Christ, and what that means is you're growing in a knowledge of these two extremes, and we're growing more and more understanding that Jesus demands more than we ever imagined. It's more than just like kind of taping him part of your life, or it's more than just like getting a painting on your wall, and now you're good to go. The demands that Jesus wants is your whole, you're on the wrong mountain. He demands it's a, a totally different view of things. But then you also appreciate who Jesus really is, especially Lent. You realize the more, you have better understanding of what he's done, what he's given up, how he's forgiven you, how he's accepted you, those two extremes. What is the problem with this rich young man? What is he struggling with? Not the acceptance part yet. He's struggling with the demands part. Because in his mind, he thought, I think it's right about here. And Jesus is trying to push it kind of all the way back here. So the other thing that happens here with this rich young man, he's struggling, and he's looking at this, and he's trying to figure it out. And the, the, he's trying to tell this guy, I don't think you quite understand what, what Christianity is. Because did you notice when he met Jesus, what does he ask him? He asked him two things. It's his memory now. I'm not going to pull it up mostly because I forgot to make that slide, but it's also a good teaching aid. So what, what two questions does he ask him? The first one is, what must I do to get eternal life, right? And then he asks the second one a little bit later, we'll touch on it. So what do I have to do? And what is the second one that he asks? What do I, what, what am I lacking or what am I missing? Another way to ask that is, what do I lack? And let's just cover the lack one for a second. The there's a lot of views, and I think sometimes each of us struggle with this to some degree. We see God kind of like a magazine. And if you ever read magazines, what kind of questions do they ask on the cover? I've never seen one that says, here is the next way to revolutionize your whole entire life. Have you ever seen that on a magazine? Like there's no article that says, here's what, how you redo your whole life. There isn't one. There's books like that. There's like movies like that. There's that guy on PBS who's always talking with a group of people. I'm sure he's redoing their whole life. But that's not usually how magazines... Magazines look at it like uh, your life is pretty put together, but you just got to add one more thing. And so like if you see a fitness magazine, it says like, okay, this one thing you have to add for great abs, right? I mean, there's like one exercise you're missing out on. That's, that's it. That's it. There's only one. And then 
uh, one thing for huge thighs. You know, like, I don't picture a lot of people buying that magazine, actually. I'm like, like one thing to make your hips look huge, you need corduroys, <laughs> right? So like, that's not what, that's, so there's things that you add, and, and most of us, like, there's just, there is, most of our lives are put together for the most part. I don't think most of our lives are spiraling out of control, and we're thinking, like, I need a complete redo. Most of us are just trying to figure out a lot of things are together. There's just one more thing I need. And maybe they say, hey, this is what you need, the, the paleo diet, or you need intermittent fasting, or you need like uh, front squats, or you got to do this certain ab exercise, or you got to do this kind of savings. And you go to your boss when you work, and you're probably thinking, I want to be a really, really good employee. And it's not very helpful when they say, hey, everything's great. If you're a driven person, you kind of want to know, what, what, what do I have to do to even be better? Like, what am I missing? And that's what we're adding. And Christianity doesn't work that way. And this guy's climbing this mountain. He thinks he's like one step away from really being complete. And this is when Jesus says you're on the wrong mountain because you can't just tape Jesus in your life. You can't, it's not like one more book on the shelf. It's not like another hobby that you have. It's, it, if you're going to be a Christian, here's the reality. It blows up everything about your whole life. Think about There's another rich guy that Jesus meets. And um, this is right close to uh, in John 3. So John 3, 16, he speaks that to an individual. The guy's name is Nicodemus. He's a rich old guy, not a young rich guy. And he sneaks to Jesus in the cover of the night. And he's like, hey, what's the deal? What, what do I have to do here? And what's Jesus' response? He doesn't say there's just like one more thing you're missing. He says you have to be born again. Like you've got to start over. Your, your only chance to understand who God is is to start over. You've got to start over on a different mountain, in a sense, is the picture. Second thing he struggled with, that it's not something that we add to our lives. And the second thing I think he struggles with, this individual, is um, what is it that I must do? And I think it's really interesting when Jesus kind of interacts with him, he gives him a lot of the low-hanging fruit, right? Has anyone here murdered anyone? Okay, just checking. Like, I shouldn't ask that out loud because then I'd probably be obligated by like, uh, you know, pastor, parishioner, <laughs> but other people aren't, so you'd get you'd get busted. So like, no one's murdered here. I mean, no one like the adultery. Okay, so you kind of go down this line. The one thing that he asks, he doesn't ask, is like when they summarize the commandments, they say love. He even adds that one: love your neighbor as yourself. What's the one commandment he's missing that you probably know? What's the one that immediately comes to your head if you'd summarize the commandments: love your neighbor as yourself? And we missed one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay, so, and it, so he misses that one. So Jesus kind of comes into his world and he says, okay, 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 I, I understand you're, you're a pretty moral, upright guy and you want to kind of climb this mountain of Jesus because that is a legitimate way to get to God. If you want to get to God, you follow the commandments. Jesus himself said that. That's exact. you can do that. And the guy's probably picturing this like, okay, the dirt bags are down on the bottom and the really good, upright people me, are up towards the top. So I'm really, really close to having this relationship with God. It's really, I'm super close. I just want that assurance. And, but Jesus says, okay, we're going to just try one out. We're going to try one command out. How's that sound? Just one. And he said, uh, he comes to him, and in Mark, it says he looked at him, and he loved him, and so he sees exactly what this person needs to hear. He says, here's what I need. You got to sell all your stuff. And, and he goes away sad. Why, why does he go away sad? Because money was a big deal to him. Right? Money had captured his heart. I'm not sure what it, what it was about money. And today we're actually talking about greed. I mean, I'm not sure what it was about money, but money has a pull on a whole lot of different directions. 
And money is a powerful, powerful thing. I mean, if, if you think about, um, when they talk about power, they talk about like power and sex and money. All of those are powerful, powerful things. But what can money give you? I mean, really, what can money give you? If you have a lot of money, what can it give you? I think it gives you a sense of control. I think that, that's great. I mean, it gives you a sense that who can push you around if you've got money? If you've got enough, you can do just about anything you want. Someone says, hey, you're not allowed here? I'll buy the place. You know, I, I, you know that's what, I, and I've told you that story before. A friend of mine, and they were playing a game in Madison. They were playing this, uh, I shouldn't say, they were playing a, a game in an establishment. And the dad, who was a VP for Brigton Stratton, vice president, and they said, ha-ha, you're going to lose, you're going to run out of money because he's playing his sons. And he said, they'll run out of beer before I run out of money. <laughs> so what kind of control does that give you? I couldn't say that statement, right? I mean, so that, I'd, I'd have to just, I couldn't say that, but he could. There's a sense of control. There's a sense of security that comes with it. There's a sense of power. There's a sense of freedom. If you've got enough money, you can just say, hey, I'm going to go someplace, right? That, that's an appealing thing. And if you don't have it, what kind, of, what kind of grasp does money have on your life? You think about it a lot. You wonder if I had just like a little bit more, then maybe I could have some of that security. You look at other people who have it and your heart kind of is envious. You wish you had their situation. Money is so powerful. And, and I think it's fascinating in Mark, we see these eyes of Jesus just looking inside this. And it says he loved him, he cared about him. And what he's saying is, I, I can look in your heart. I'm looking in your heart right now. And I know this doesn't feel good, but here's what you need to hear. Jesus always has an ability, I think, to look in our heart. And we, we can see people's heart. This happens like when I do, um, let me ask you this situation. Have you ever talked, let's just say it's at work or at school, you've talked up to someone about being like the nicest person and then someone else that you're talking to gets really uncomfortable? Has that ever happened to you? Or um, it'll happen once in a while when I'm doing a funeral and mostly when I was younger, you talk about a funeral and you talk about what a fantastic person an individual was and sometimes you see people a little bit squirmy. Why do you think they're squirmy? I don't know their heart like they know them. If you really know someone, you kind of know their heart. Like right now, if I just said, uh, talking about your dad, I'm going to just pick an example. I said, let's tell you what. Your dad was the greatest person I've ever met. He's so nice and so giving and so loving and so patient. And I went on and on and on about how great your dad was. Does that make you uncomfortable? Because we all know the times when our dad was not patient and not loving and not kind, right? You can go all the way down the line. So it makes you uncomfortable. So what Jesus is doing is he's looking inside this guy's heart and he's saying, on the outside, to a lot of people, it looks pretty good. And so I use the example of a needle. You know, you can Google a needle under a microscope. Here's the pictures. So when you look at a needle, I'm getting older, so all needles look good. I've never seen one. I'm like, oh, that's atrocious-looking needle. Like, I, I can't, I've never seen one that I can tell with my own eye that looks bad. Once in a while, you can see, like, the, the end bend. Have you seen that happen? I examine needles apparently more than anyone else. Um, so, so that's what they look like. But then this is the same needle. They just go under closer and closer, and you start to see how scarred it is. You start to see even the end is bent. You start to see, and that's kind of how our hearts are. We know how someone else's heart is. The people that are closest to us, we see darkness sometimes in their heart, and we see the mistakes that they've made, and we see that. But whose heart do we know better than our own? And, and who knows our heart even better than we do? And sometimes we don't even know what the real problem is. But Jesus has this ability, when you meet the real Jesus, is to look right into his heart and say, um, I can see the dark spots. 
I, I think of it like just imagine someone, you're in your garage, and um, you've got your child with you, one of your kids, if you have kids. You have your, your child with you, and someone who, who feels wronged by you comes, and they have a weapon, and they, and they come, and they said, I'm going to take something very precious from you, and it's not going to be your life. And what are you thinking right at that moment as you hold your child? And you start to shake, and you start to get worried, and they said, I'm going to take your Sears air compressor. Like, how would you, would there be a sense of relief right here, right? I mean, that's, it's 30 gallons. I mean, it's a pretty legit air compressor, but I'd be like, okay, what happens if he said, I'm going to take your 2003 Volkswagen wagon TDI with rust behind the front wheels? Like, what, what would I say? I mean, I've been waiting for someone to steal this for years. Like, the keys are in it. Go ahead. It's insured. I keep comprehensive on just for such an occasion, right? That's what, uh, this would not bother me, but what happens if he says, I'm going to take your kid, right? It becomes very clear what actually matters to you. It becomes very clear. And I think the same thing happens with Jesus. We, there's so many things, but when those things start, start taken away, you become very clear what actually has some value to you. And this is what happens. I just saw a thing on tornadoes. Our kids were walking, uh, watching a documentary, and it just obliterated. This was like in, I could name any state, right? It, just about any Midwest state, Kansas or Oklahoma, one of the, I think it was Oklahoma. It totally obliterated the town. Their, their, um, their car is gone and their house is gone. And it's just like the family and everyone was safe and they couldn't believe it. It's a miracle. At that moment, what do you see is valuable to you? All that stuff is left and you say, you know what, if I've got my kids, I've got my family, I think I'm pretty rich. And that's what Jesus is trying to show. This man, he looked into his heart and he says, money has a pull over you, so get rid of it. There's some, I can see, Jesus is saying, as he looks in his heart, he's saying there's, there's something that has a control over you, and it's, it's killing you, and you don't even know it. Maybe it's not money for you. I mean, if Jesus would be here, and, and you know, like his eyes are looking in us, maybe it's not money. You know, maybe it's appearance, you know, maybe it's your job, but there's something that Jesus can look into your heart and say it's, it's going to kill you. There's no rule that says you can't have cash. Uh, remember Zacchaeus, he climbs up the tree, and then he comes down, and he's so, he's so delighted that Jesus invites him to his house. He says, I'm going to give away half my stuff. And does Jesus go, mm-mm, keep it coming? No, that, that there's no, there's no rule about what you have to give to Jesus but there is a rule that says if something is so captured your heart, you've got to get rid of it because it's killing you. And so what this guy was lacking is not the ability. Jesus comes to Abraham, think about that request, and he says, take your son, your one and only son. What is that request? There's something that seems to have captured his heart, and Jesus says, before this kills you, I have to take this out. I don't think the thing that the guy was lacking was, uh, was just giving his stuff away. I think what he really lacked is recognizing where his treasure was. That Jesus, no matter how much money you have, if you just have Jesus, like those people in the tornadoes, if you just stand alone with Jesus, this is where your treasure is. His forgiveness is more valuable than anything you can own. His compassion is better than anything you've ever seen. His acceptance, what does it mean to say that Jesus says, I, I am the thing that you can delight in because when you delight in me, I delight in you. When his disciples came back from um, casting out demons, do you remember this part in the Bible? So he sends them out. He sends out the 70, it says. He sends out the disciples, and they come back, and why were they super pumped? Why were they pumped? I would be pumped if I was part of the 70. 
because they're casting out demons. So they come back, and they, they talk to Jesus, and they're like, you would believe it! <laughs> like, we're sending out demons, and they're all pumped, and they're telling Jesus about this. And what is Jesus' response? High fives, right? No, he does not high five. What does he say? He said, rejoice not in the casting out of demons. Rejoice that your treasure, your name is written in the book of life in heaven. And I think that's an awesome thing to say. This is where our true value is. Our value is not here. Our value is going to be in heaven. And there's different ways that the Bible describes this that says when you treasure God, God treasures you. And there's different ways that it does that. There's a picture of the Old Testament. We talked about the priest. And they wear this kind of amazing garment. Have you ever seen it? It's full of like jewels and all these things. But the jewels are 12 of them. And those 12 jewels are the names of each tribe right around the priest's heart. Who is your high priest? It's Jesus, and Jesus says it a little bit differently in the book of Isaiah. He says, I've, I've, I've written your name on my hands. I've carved them on my hands, which is a different picture. You can get a tattoo like on your back, right? And how often do you see that? For the first month, probably every time you walk by the mirror is you kind of like scoot by like that to see it. But I mean, after that, you don't see it very often. And do you see it maybe on top of your hands? I think maybe, maybe, but just the other day I was doing, um, we had to do bar muscle-ups, which is more than you need to know, but I had to do as many as I could, and I tore my hands. You can see dark marks. That's like two weeks ago, and I had to super glue, super glue the things because it kept splitting. This, I'm, that's the medical way to do it. Don't worry about it. So, the, But I see them all the time. I'm like, I see them all the time. I can't, I'm trying to get rid of these dark marks and these cuts that have been you know, kind of split open. What would happen if someone put their name right in your hand? Like you'd see it all the time, and that's what God is saying to you when you treasure me, when I am your greatest treasure, when you realize that if everything else is gone, I can fill you up. My forgiveness and my compassion and my love, that, that's what religion is. Religion isn't trying to climb up the right mountain. He says, you're on the wrong mountain altogether. You need to get on my back and go by my merits, and I'm the one who stands before God before you. I don't know what's pulling your heart. Because from here, you look like a perfect needle. You do. You look, you look like perfect needles. But I think you can see your own heart. What is that thing that Jesus sees right into you that you say, Jesus, I need to give this to you. I need to get rid of this so that you can fill me up completely. And God says he always does. I always forgive. I always love. And I always embrace you. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your eyes look upon us, and it's through your eyes you see into our heart. And we pray that each day we start to appreciate the demands that you have for us. And we see we're overwhelmed. We cannot do that. And it's in that moment that you demand more than we ever imagined, that we see our despair, we see the darkness, we see our unlovability. That's where you step into our lives, and you show us, I accept you, and I give you more than you ever imagined. You listen to us, you love us, you have compassion for us, and you have stored up treasures for us in heaven. Help us as we grow in your word. We're learning those two extremes, where we stand with you, but where we stand with you in your forgiveness. We ask this in your name, amen.